Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Basketball Conference, the ACC football podcast at long last. My name is Joey. He is Mike. Mike, first question, how was uh, Virginia Tech's spring game attendance, would you say? Uh, top 10 in the country. Do you want to talk about Georgia Tech's? Probably not. No? What? Never mind. This is a bad idea to start mm-hmm. even out with this. What? Mazel tov on the top 10 spring game attendance. Do we have actual numbers, some actuals on ticket sales and all that good stuff? There were actually, well, so um, Tech spring game is free, but there was a tweet out there, you know, when the spring games were concluding. So, you know, they usually run for, you know, two or three weekends in the spring, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a tweet out there capturing the attendance. I believe Tech had about 40,000 roughly um, to 60 you know, 65, 66,000 seat stadium. So mm-hmm. about two thirds full, which isn't, isn't bad uh, given the fact that, you know, essentially most of tech's defense and a good number of offensive players will not be returning to this year's team. So not bad. Cool. Now, how much does it matter? That's, I guess that's the next question. You're of the opinion. It doesn't matter at all. I'm of the opinion that it is like the most meaningless thing that we talk about in all of college football. And that is saying something because we talk about a lot of meaningless nonsense. It's spoken like a true UVA fan. Hey, 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 hey. Who? Hey, who? That's not cool. You take so, that back. Yeah. So tech, tech fans have been relentlessly badgering UVA fans about spring attendance for quite some time. And if any of you follow the key play on Twitter, I don't know how many of your tech fans are listening to this podcast. I assume a good bit because I pump this up and I have a pretty good tech following, obviously. Um, you know, you follow the key play, you see that they just make fun of UVA spring game attendance, any chance they get uh, because, you know, nobody really shows up to it. Turns out nobody showed up to Georgia techs either. You, you're right. probably looking at the wrong picture. There was a picture showing the uh, the side that all the cameras face, you know, the away team side during games. And, yeah, there was basically nobody over there. What they were not excluding or they're not showing is that – so, the, first of all, you know, this is on a Friday evening, right? Um, they set this up on a Friday evening. As the game's starting, the sun is still up. I mean, it's like 7 o'clock in, in that part of the state. You know, it's it doesn't get dark until 8, 8.30, whatever. So that side of the stadium is in the sun. In the shade, there was probably between eight and 9,000 people. I think the number that was being thrown around was about 8,500 people, right? Not bad for a Friday night in Atlanta. Like, it's not something that Georgia Tech promotes in a big way. There was, they were missing several starters on both sides of the ball. I think was, literally 11 of 22 starters weren't playing in the game. Was the weather bad there? Am I imagining that? No, it was good weather. It okay. was good weather, but I mean, it's, it's a Friday night in the middle of downtown Atlanta. Like, a not super easy to get to for families and such, especially the folks that would come in from call it Augusta or whatever, a couple hours away. Um, and B, there's a lot of other things that people like to do in Atlanta on Friday nights. You know, concerts, bars, whatever. So, 
I can give you a hundred excuses on why, you know, it, it, why Georgia Tech's attendance is what it is for spring games. But the point is, it doesn't matter. Like it's, it's the most meaningless thing. It's, it's totally dependent on the school and the location and the setup and how much they promote it and what they're trying to get out of it. I've never gotten any indication that Georgia Tech gives a damn about how many people show up to the spring game. Paul Johnson certainly doesn't. Uh, this year, Paul Johnson demanded that they not even stream the game online. It wasn't televised. It wasn't streamed. Nothing. Um, That's where I have my gripe, too, because it's the same issue with Virginia Tech. It's They don't stream it. I was traveling for work. I didn't mm-hmm. see any of it. I was actually originally scheduled to go to it, um, mm-hmm. do some radio stuff down there uh, for the local yeah. radio station in Blacksburg. Wasn't able to go. Wasn't able to track it. Um, Tech's athletic site doesn't keep the stats for the spring game. Really difficult to really find out what happened, except for the beat writers that are there and tweeting about it. That's literally the only way. If you're not in attendance physically there in the stadium, the only way you find out what's going on is people who are there writing about it or tweeting about it, and that's literally it. It it drives me insane. Like I feel like I'm giving it too much credit to call it a glorified practice. Like it's or, or glorified scrimmage or what. I mean it's. It's not. Um, and, and I mean, we can talk about this in the context of Georgia Tech or Virginia Tech, but across the country, I mean, you've got certain schools tooting their horns about how they're selling out their stadium and Nebraska's got a new coach and here's, you know, all their people are showing up, the, the stadium sold out, and whatever. But at the same time, you've got schools like Minnesota, Wisconsin, you know, people that are canceling their game outright because weather and it's just not convenient and it's nowhere near important enough to try to reschedule it or any of that. I mean, that, that's my issue with the whole thing is that everybody treats it kind of differently, but we're also trying to judge everyone across the same standard. It's like, it's, it's just, it's, it's dumb and it's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. And, and it irritates the crap out of me that people want to use it in some sort of pissing contest as for who's better. Like that's, it's a waste of, of time and energy and it's, it's just dumb. It's dumb, Mike. Uh, it's dumb, but it's the same usual schools tooting their own damn horn about, spring game numbers it's the alabamas and the michigans of the world ohio state Mm -hmm. clemson like who it the schools you'd expect to go crazy over spring game numbers are the same fans that are completely and totally insufferable come the fall so it's the same four or five fan bases that you'd expect are making a big deal about spring game numbers i'm actually in agreement with you i don't really care um you know spring game doesn't really move the needle for me i like going because it's the best glimpse we get of football um really until the fall so we got this huge gap right we got the national championship game in january and then from basically middle of january on um we don't really have anything until the spring so it's really tough to really um get any sort of real football in us until the fall so from that standpoint i like the spring game but other than that i really don't care who goes or um you know, what occurs on the field. It doesn't really move the needle for me. Mike, so I agree that we're like, there, there's nothing really that we, we really get from talking about spring game attendance or whatever. And on, honestly, most of these games are not that important. There are times, though, that you get a little bit of a nugget of something interesting coming out of them. And uh, of all places, we saw a little interesting nugget coming out of Clemson this year. We talked on our last show about, you know, what's the possibility that uh, Kelly Bryant gets overtaken by one of the younger quarterbacks there in the in the uh, in, in the quarterback room in, at Clemson. And the thought is, I mean, look, Kelly Bryant just took you to a, a college football playoff, won you an ACC championship. He's got his limitations, but there's a lot of things he does really well. He's a huge contributor to the run game. And yet, Mike, 
that you know we, we saw something on uh, on Clemson's spring game that was indicative that there might be a little more than that going on and there's maybe some decent chance that we get a little bit of uh, Hunter Johnson or Trevor Lawrence early on uh, with Clemson yeah so the problem with the so we, we talked about spring game and how it doesn't matter how many fans are there or you know how packed the stadium is unless you get into a situation where Clemson is in where literally, you know, that your team is going to be a top two or three team in the country next season, right? You're going to have the best defense that Dabo's probably had since he's been there. Um, and you got offensive pieces in place that are already there, ready to contribute. You have an incumbent starter in Kelly Bryant, who had a really good year last year, had some issues in the downfield passing game, right? Then you have Trevor Lawrence, highly touted recruit. And by highly touted recruit, I mean, number one quarterback recruit in the country comes in as a true freshman enrolls early participates in the spring practices and in the spring game and in front of whatever it was 55 or 60,000 people puts on an absolute show Dabo Swinney's got a decision to make the smart decision if I'm Dabo is I know what kind of roster I have I start the veteran right I start Kelly Bryant you know what you have in place around him you know your defense is going to be really good don't start a true freshman. There's no reason to do that. Get Trevor Lawrence some reps. He's the future quarterback. That's pretty clear. Hunter Johnson is the forgotten guy in all this. I think he'll probably end up transferring out should he not win the starting quarterback job. Um, but he's kind of the forgotten guy in this whole thing. In my opinion, it's a two-horse race between Kelly Bryant and Trevor Lawrence. And coming off of a very positive performance in the spring game, Trevor Lawrence looks like he will be pushing for playing time sooner rather than later at Clemson. It's something that, Joey, you and I were kind of tossing around quite a bit um, in our last podcast, talking about some spring storylines to watch and how Trevor Lawrence could push if he participated and played well in the spring game. Well, he was able to do that in front of thousands and thousands of fans who are already clamoring for him to get on the field. But if I'm Dabo Swinney, I take a step back. You know that Trevor Lawrence is your future quarterback. I think you start with Kelly Bryant. You know what you got. You know he's going to be solid. He doesn't really turn the football over. You know, one in the hand, two in the bush, whatever the I don't know the saying, but bird in the hand, worth two in the bush. Yes, thank you. There it Boom. is. Boom. Star Kelly Bryant. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to happen, but it's it's out there. Trevor Lawrence has a legitimate chance to start come the fall. All right, Mike, I'm gonna let's just start here. I agree with you. I completely agree. I, I think that you stick with Kelly Bryant until you, you have a really good reason not to. Um, and a good spring game performance from your freshman quarterback is not a good reason not to. Now I'll play devil's advocate here for a second. Counterpoint. We're going to talk about NFL draft results here in in a little bit, but there were three Clemson players taken in this draft, Mike, which for a playoff team, pretty absurdly low. B, do you know when the first Clemson player was taken? I think I know who it was. Who was it? Ray Ray McLeod? No. Deion uh, Kane? No. Uh, they, they were the two uh, offensive players that were taken for Clemson. They were both in the sixth round. Dorian O'Daniel uh, was actually oh, yeah, taken okay. with the number 100 overall pick, the last pick of the third round. Um, so here's my point in all this. So there were two offensive players taken, both receivers, uh, both kind of well into the sixth round. Um, my point, Mike, is that the, the the fact that a playoff team only had three players drafted and brings back everybody else 
What that tells you is that they are loaded. There is no better supporting cast that you could try to put around a freshman quarterback to make him successful. So understood, you know, the fears around putting in a young quarterback, they're unproven, they're a little less uh, predictable maybe, you know, they're, they're much more likely to make some crazy mistake at a, at a very inopportune time. Understand all that. And again, I'm more of a risk averse type. So I, I understand and I agree that you stick with the veteran until you got a good reason not to. But in the defense of the Clemson coaching staff, should they decide to go with the freshman, this has probably got a lot of reason to, uh, a lot of to do with that is that they've got such a good supporting cast around them that it's, they're not going to have to ask the freshman to do spectacular things and carry the team. Um, you know, the way that you kind of saw Deshaun Watson do him a little bit in 2014, you're not going to see a, a Hunter Johnson do that this year. He's not going to have to. Um, so I, I'm curious to watch. I'm with you. I think you stick with Kelly Bryant, but but you never know. There, there's a chance that maybe they don't. I think either way, Clemson is in a really, really good position, obviously being one of the most talented teams mm-hmm. in all college football hanging into next season. As far as the protection they have coming back, look, their front four, uh, you know, everybody will talk about Clemson's front seven. Let's talk about their front four. They have four defensive linemen that could be drafted in the top 10 in the 2019 NFL draft. I mean, they're absolutely loaded up front defensively. So, look, lean on a really strong defense. Hope your running game comes around and becomes a little bit more consistent this year. I think that will open things up in the downfield passing game for Kelly Bryant. I think that would really help. Um, you know, Tavian Feaster got better as the year went on last year. I think he'll he'll have a strong start here. Uh, to 2018 season. I think if he gets off on the right foot early um, and kind of builds off of the momentum that he started to uh, possess late in the season last year, I think Clemson has a real opportunity to improve their offensive production. And they weren't a bad offense last year. It was just a step back from what they had with Deshaun Watson, which of course is expected when you're replacing a guy who could have easily won the Heisman a couple of years in a row. It uh, didn't end up happening. Yeah. Multi-time runner up, one of the best college players of the, of the generation, like, for sure. Um, Mike, that's that's the Clemson QB situation. We got to talk about the other defending division QB situation here with Miami. Um, we've talked about this a little bit, and it's, it's a bit of a different picture. So with Clemson, you've got an incumbent starter that somewhat limited ceiling, but it's pretty high floor. Um, with Miami, it's a little different. It seems like a fairly low ceiling, and and that's kind of what's limiting their, their offense right now with Malik Rozier. Uh, meanwhile, you've got a couple of younger guys kind of waiting in the wings and Nikosi Perry, guys like that. Um, but we've kind of discussed, Mike, and I told you, based on what we saw from Mark Richt at Georgia, he's a loyal guy. He's going to stick with his guy. And uh, e- even if there's a more talented guy behind him, you know, the, the senior and the, the incumbent starter is always going to take president, uh, precedent in a uh, Mark Richt coach team. And it's starting to look bes- like – you know, looking at Miami's spring game, I mean, it's the same thing, right? It's looking like they're going to stick with Malik Rozier, stick with their guns, and whatever limitations that has on their offense, they're they're sticking with their guy. He's the captain, and that's what it is, uh, even though there's probably better guys waiting in the wings to take over for him. Yeah, I think the issue with Miami and Malik Rozier is that their ceiling is definitely limited with him as a starter, like you mentioned. Uh, the issues with Rozier is, you know, don't stem just from the downfield passing game. It's just the passing game, period. He's just wildly inconsistent, completes about half his passes, um, throws, a, throws the ball a good bit to the other team, which doesn't help. Uh, 
defensively, Miami was really, really good last year. The turnover chain and the whole nine, um, you know, they obviously missed Mark Walton when he was out, but they ran the ball okay with Travis Homer uh, later in the season. Obviously, Miami has a ton of talent um, on the outside. They have a bunch of guys that can really hurt you in the passing game if Malik Rozier can complete those passes. Well, the problem is now that Malik Rozier, as an incumbent starter, um, that is an issue uh, for Miami as far as their ceiling is concerned. Can they win the Coastal Division again with Malik Rozier as the starter? Sure they can. Can they get to a college football playoff and win a game when they're there? Probably not. Now, an interesting tidbit now moving into Mark Rick is that He's reportedly discussing a contract extension with the school. Joey, you and I have brought this up several times. He goes with the incumbent starter almost to a fault. It's a good reason why his Georgia teams kind of topped off at nine or 10 wins every year. Mark Drick is a hell of a recruiter. He's an excellent coach. The issue that he has is that he's very, very stubborn. He's stuck in his ways. He's going to, he's going to go with the guy that has the most experience no matter what upside be damned and I think that's the issue here that Miami might have with Malik Rozier because I think there are more talented options on the roster at the quarterback position I think ultimately he does go with Malik Rozier and I think it'll be interesting to watch that storyline unfold as 2018 goes on because a lot of Miami fans were really excited with the progress last year but with Malik Rozier as the quarterback those fans were left wanting more if we get six or seven games into 2018 and Miami sitting there six or seven and oh but Malik Rozier hasn't played that well, it's going to be a product of, okay, well, they play in the ACC. Um, they, you know, they've beaten Duke and Wake Forest. Let's see what happens when they get against when they go against a team like a Florida State who's going to be returning a really good defense. Let's see what happens when they get to another ACC title game and play a team like Clemson as a repeat of this past year's performance. That's really going to tell the story on the 2018 Hurricanes if Malik Rozier ends up being the starter again. Well, I think that what's kind of coming into focus for me and maybe something that I've always kind of known, but I haven't really put all the pieces together or been able to talk about it cohesively. And man, that's setting a high standard for myself moving forward here. But um, the, the thought that one of Mark Rick's greatest strengths, if not his single greatest strength, is also to some degree his downfall um, one of the things that people love about Mark Richt and, and that I'm sure is a huge weapon of his in recruiting is that he he so deeply cares about his players and mentoring them, not only as football players, but as people um, doing what he can to make make them better people, giving them uh, second chances when they have run ins outside of the you know off the field and uh, doing a lot of these things that. Basically, he's more concerned with his relationship with his players and the mentorship and the growth that goes on there. He's more concerned with that than this than the winning games on the field aspect, which I, I'm not one to judge on. You know, those are obviously very important kind of in their own realms, in their own circles. But I don't know that you necessarily have to do one or the other, but he's so heavily on the mentorship and, and development piece of his people that sometimes I think it. it affects his judgment as it relates to winning games. And that's kind of what we're talking about. And um, I think that he is so concerned with showing confidence in Malik and building up, you know, Malik's confidence and believing that he can coach him and, and deploy him the right way and all this. And that is a certain weapon in recruiting is, you know, Hey, the players love him, right? Like he shows all this confidence in them and he believes in them and he's encouraging and 
just a positive guy and all this, but he's not going to make the difficult decision and, and um, you know, kind of bring someone down if that is what it takes to win. Um, and that's, I think to some degree, that's what you saw at Georgia. I think you're seeing it here. And I think especially here, I, I don't see this as uh, Mark Rick's, you know, career move or anything to Miami. Honestly, I don't know that he'll ever leave Miami. Um, I think the next time he leaves Miami, he'll either be fired from the program or he'll be he'll retire and and that'll be that. And he'll probably just live the rest of his days in Miami, if not, you know, on TV or whatever. But at the end of the day, like I I mean, I don't know that Mark Richt is hell bent on winning here. I think he's just trying to enjoy the remainder of his career. And if they have some winning, that's great. And they'll they'll do what that takes, you know, to some degree. But it, it, they still place the people and the relationships on the roster above the results on the field. And that's my, my take on it. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe it is. I don't really know, but I, I think to some degree, that's also what you're seeing with Mark Rick and a certain limitation of any program that he's going to run. Also like the last two years for Miami now, I mean, overall pretty successful in comparison to what they were dealing with before. Oh, so sure. have, I mean, they had Larry Coker and everything went great for a number of years. And then you had the Randy Shannon era. Um, that was oh, a complete and total disaster. Um, Al Golden, complete and total disaster. LOL. Yeah. Um, there, there, there's another coach or two I'm missing in there, but there, there were issues that Miami had stemming from post Larry Coker that they're still trying to recover from. Now they have Mark Richton there and all of a sudden it's sunshine and daisies and roses and everything's great. It's like, okay, we won nine games. We won 10 games. We're competing in the ACC championship game. We win the division. Um, ACC Coastal for the first time since joining the conference last year. So, like, everything's great. But you still have Malik Rozier playing quarterback. And you're still inherently limited offensively with him as the starter behind center. So, something's got to change, right? I mean, they're already... Uh, you look at Miami's athletic department, they're ready to give Rick whatever he wants because this is the most successful they've been since the early 2000s. So let's see where this goes. Rick is a very good coach. He's a great recruiter, um, but he's going to be stuck in his ways. He's already set in his ways. This is what he does. He goes with the incumbent starter, no matter what the ceiling is. And he just kind of plays, lays out all the cards on the table and they are what they are. And let's see what happens. And, and the results completely speak for themselves here, right? Like he, I mean, he very consistently wins at a high level. I think what I'm trying to say is that there's a reason that he doesn't win at the highest level. And that's something that you're, you're seeing and that you will continue to see. And that at some point, I think Miami fans will get tired of, and that's all that's, you know, that yes, he has been way more successful than Randy Shannon or Al Golden ever were there. And there's, I think there's good reason for that. It's just that he's, Frankly, he's a really good coach. He's a really good recruiter, you know, all this stuff. But at the end of the day, there will be a ceiling based on some of his personal preferences and kind of the way that he runs his program. And that's that just it is what it is. But, Mike, I mean, if, I think if that's as bad as it gets, you're still doing pretty well. And, and certainly as it relates to the QB situation, you're doing probably better than another school in the state of Florida. Uh, Florida State is having a, a bit of an issue right now. Um your boy DeAndre Francois, he he uh, got his knee shredded in the uh, you know mid second half of their opening game against Alabama last year. Been working back to come back from an injury. Uh, was not really a participant in spring practice as much. Still rehabbing and such. But uh, when he did, you know, he did kind of come back into the news and kind of for some of the wrong reasons. Uh, there was apparently like a drug raid on his apartment. Is that bad? Not good. 
not good. Uh, I don't know. What, what, Mike, what can you tell me about this? I don't know any details here, but I know that it seemed a little bit sketchy, but ultimately not a good sign for the Nulls here. Not a good sign, and my only question coming out of this is like, if there aren't going to be any charges pressed against Francois, which I, I don't know if there are or not. I don't know enough about this story. Uh, you know, all I know is basically what you just said. His apartment's raided as part of a drug bust, and there really haven't been any charges filed against him to date. So if there are no uh, there are no charges filed against him, my only question is, okay, legal stuff aside, like where does this put him with the new coaching staff? Willie Taggart comes in, entirely new offensive system, entirely new scheme. All new, all positions are up for grabs. Um, Francois rehabbing from an injury anyway. He's coming in competing with James Blackman, who's a true sophomore. Blackman, obviously, okay, you know, just okay. He was mediocre last year at the quarterback position for Florida State. Um, and now Florida State fans are looking at the James Blackman experience and wondering, okay, is this our guy moving forward? Because if Francois puts himself in murky waters with the new coaching staff, and he does maybe even get implicated in this federally um, or, or, or not, just charged with a crime, even at the state level, where does this put him in relation to the Florida State football program? Because there are whole sets of rules with that as far as criminal activity is concerned. And outside of that, even if you get past that, how does the coaching staff feel about Francois now as a participant on their roster moving forward? Forget as the starting quarterback, just as a guy who's going to be on their roster if he gets in trouble, um, if he gets in trouble with the law, ultimately. Not a good sign for Francois. I think, you know, rehabbing from an injury, you know, you see what he can do on the field. So he kind of gets a benefit of the doubt uh, to a degree, you know, legal stuff aside. You look at him and say, okay, Francois, he's got, he's better than James Blackman. But does he get off on the wrong foot with the coaching staff? If so, do they want to start James Blackman? And if James Blackman ends up being the starter, what does this Florida State offense look like next season? Because Blackman was not great last year. Now, some of his youth, he wasn't ready. He was really raw, pushed into a situation that he probably had no business being in, whatever. He was not ready last year. He got better as the season went along, but he ended up just being okay. So if he's the starter for Florida State, I mean, I think expectations are completely turned upside down. I, I completely agree. I mean, I don't know how I don't know how either of these guys necessarily fits into what Willie Taggart's gonna do. And frankly, on that note, I don't know what Willie Taggart's gonna do. Um his offense has kind of changed shapes a little bit every stop he's been at. And that's a good thing in the terms of you can feel good that he's going to match his offense to whatever talent that he has. But it's a question of now, I mean, what shape or form does it take? What's the playbook look like all that? And it's not a thing to worry about. I mean, he's going to get it figured out, but it's more a thing of how do I project, you know, what anything looks like? It's really hard to say. Uh, I will say that there was a comment I heard somewhere. I can't remember if it was on the radio or in a podcast or whatever, where somebody was talking about DeAndre Francois and, John, and James Blackman saying, well, I don't know that there was anything that James Blackman, you know, was any really all that different on measurably than, than DeAndre Francois was. And I, I, I could not disagree more with that. I mean, I think that there's almost nothing that I see in DeAndre Francois game. That's not as good or better than everything in James Blackman's game. Um, I, Everything that, that they do, I mean, mobility, durability, arm strength, accuracy, reading the field, any of it, 
I don't know how there's anything that DeAndre Francois is any worse than Blackman at, and I think he's probably better at most of those things, if if not any, like all of it. I mean, I mean, so I I think that it's not helping Florida State if DeAndre Francois doesn't come back. I mean, I don't. I, I think that the the program ceiling is higher with Francois at quarterback than with Blackman, as as far as I can tell, and from what I've seen. Obviously, lots of talent there. Like you said, lots coming back on defense and and generally, you know, plenty of talent all over the field there. New coaching staff, lots of excitement, lots of good things happening in Tallahassee. But when you're what we'll call technically your incumbent starting quarterback is uh, part of a story that's it's kind of got it's kind of taken on a very strange life um, of what's going on. And it's very unclear what what his status is with the program. It's it's just it's a weird look and and it's not a not a positive vibe to have around the program. I think at the very least. Do you think Florida State wins eight games next season? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'd have to look at their schedule and some of their their non conference, but I mean, looking at what Willie Taggart did in year one at Oregon um, and, and recognizing that he did that without Justin Herbert for like three or four games. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily expect the complete top to bottom teardown that you saw when he got to Western Kentucky, when he got to South Florida. I, I think that they're going to kind of pick up a little bit. I think that there's still plenty of talent top to bottom of this Florida State team. I think some of the results that you saw last year were them kind of quitting on the coaching staff, or uh, maybe kind of half-assing it when they saw Jimbo kind of looking to cut and leave. You know, whatever it was. Um, I, I still have high expectations for Florida State. I think there's plenty of makings there for a strong season. So eight wins, I think, is reasonable. If you set the over-under at eight and a half, I, if I had to look at the schedule, I, I might tell you something different, but I might lean under, um, thinking they might top out around eight wins this year. Yep, I agree. Just we'll caring. have to see, though. Yep. I don't know. We'll see. Um, Mike, speaking of not always the best vibe around programs, I'm trying to segue as many of these as I can. Um you have been busy lately, um, and one of the things that you have been busy with, obviously, I mean, your your work has kept you very busy, but your work on collegefootballsaturday.com has also kept you very busy. And in, in fact, last week, you broke a story uh, regarding your own Virginia Tech Hokies that is uh, very interesting how it all came about, very interesting the content and the, the follow-up to it, and um, I'm, I'm curious as to what what exactly happened here, how you found out about it. Tell me tell me what happened here as, uh, with the Hokies coaching staff recently. Yeah, so um, last Friday afternoon, uh, you know, Virginia Tech, you know, the football program released a statement basically saying that they were going to have some coaching staff shakeups and that safeties coach and co-defensive coordinator Galen Scott had resigned from his position. Um, you know, they named an interim coach, you know, while a search is underway and they cited family reasons as the reason for his decision. Well, Tuesday of last week, um, as you know, Joey, and some of the listeners I'm sure know by now, um, as well, I do a lot of local radio down there, um, for the local ESPN affiliate, um, in, in the new river Valley in the Blacksburg area. Um, and the producer of that radio show, Brian Reed, um, uncovered a series of tweets along with the, you know, the host of the host of the show I'm on frequently, uh, Paul Van Wagner. They, they uncovered a series of tweets that a 
random Twitter account with not too many followers was basically tweeting at any major Virginia Tech individual, um, beat writer, uh, former player. I mean, you name it, this guy was tweeting at him saying that Galen Scott had slept with his wife. And, you know, you see a Twitter account with like 12 followers and like five tweets ever, and you're skeptical. So we were a bit skeptical, but we reached out to the guy anyway, and nobody had it, right? I mean, we saw it. We, we did a search for Hokies on Twitter. We saw it, and we reached out to the guy, and he provided us a series of emails, a series of messages between Galen Scott's wife and himself, where, you know, this guy broke the news to Galen Scott's wife that, you know, her husband had been cheating on her with this individual who had the Twitter account of 12 followers, this guy's wife, right? So they're basically the two spouses that were unfortunately caught up in a very bad situation um, with their spouses cheating on them. So we did a little digging. Um, we filed a FOIA request with the university, basically saying we wanted some information regarding Virginia Tech recruiting trips because you know, in conversations with this individual, he basically uncovered that there were a series of recruiting trips in early 2017, um, late 2017, and early 2018, so early this year, um, where Galen Scott had invited this woman, um, his mistress, um, to his hotel room on recruiting trips, you know, where the alleged affairs occurred. Um, this occurred throughout the state of Maryland and the state of Florida when Galen Scott was recruiting. Uh, we did a little bit of digging. We were able to, you know, to see that the dates that this guy provided checked out with Galen Scott's hotel expenses. The whole nine, we had a number of text messages and emails that, you know, we put out there in the article that I wrote on cfb-saturday.com, College Football Saturday, the site that I, you know, started back in January. Um, so, so I wrote this story on Friday afternoon, right after Galen Scott resigned. I put out a tweet basically saying that, you know, um, that Galen Scott had been involved in an affair on, on Virginia Tech football recruiting trips. Um, it got picked up by a number of outlets. Galen Scott was actually interviewed by the Richmond Times-Dispatch, another, you know, major, obviously major paper um, in the state of Virginia, where Galen Scott said, you know, he, you know, he made some mistakes. I actually also had, um, you know, Galen Scott and a couple of individuals kind of reach out to me on social media, you know, asking me to remove the post, which is interesting because I'm not going to remove the post of something that's true. I wasn't in a situation where I caused him to lose his job. He had already resigned and then I wrote it. <laughs> so I had the information. I put it out there. The individual that, you know, Brian Reed the producer on um, from ESPN Blacksburg, the individual that he and I spoke to, you know, gave us permission to put out there and publish the texts, the tweets, um, you know, all the emails that were sent, all the information they gave us. You know, he gave us permission to put that out there. So that's exactly what we did. We wrote the story. So Galen Scott, co-defensive coordinator, Virginia Tech safeties coach, resigns late last week because he was cheating on his wife um, on football recruiting trips. It doesn't implicate Virginia Tech at all um, because this ends up being really just a personal matter. Obviously, it's not the best look when, you know, Virginia Tech is paying for your hotel room and you use that hotel room to then bring in a mistress. Um, but, you know, you and I, Joey, aren't naive. This is definitely not the first time that this has happened with football coaches 
Um, it doesn't make it okay by any means, but this certainly isn't the first or the last time that this has happened with football coaches sleeping around on their wives while they're out on the recruiting trail. Um, but nevertheless, the story broke. I covered it. It got picked up. It's kind of a mess. Um, it's died down quite a bit since last Friday, but um, nevertheless, not a great situation for Virginia Tech to be in the news in, in this in this regard. So, um, you know, hopefully they're able to move past this and they, and they stepped on it pr- pretty quickly. And, you know, Galen Scott resigned and I think everybody's just ready to move on. Well, first of all, Mike, I mean, bravo to you. Well done. Well reported. Uh, this is this is a really well put together story again on CFB-Saturday.com. Um, very well done. I, I thought you did an awesome job kind of following up on this, getting evidence, making sure this is all right. Um, and, and really, I mean, it's this one of those things I was sitting here thinking as you're telling me that the uh, the coach was, reached out to you asking you to take the, the, the post down. And it's like I would have just responded with, Hashtag facts only, like facts only. That's, I mean, everything was factual. That's all stuff that happened, and, and then there's a real follow-up to it, and that's – it is what it is. I mean, that's good journalism, and it's something that we don't get enough of here in, in the year of our Lord, 2018. Um, the – I think that the implication on Virginia Tech, you're right. I mean, the, the, the university is not impacted. Like, it's not a big risk to them or anything like that. Um, I think if I if I consider the impact of this, it's just that it's not a positive vibe around the program having a, a position coach leaving under those kinds of terms, and um, it's to kind of change that up. The off season is a better time to do that than in season, obviously, but um, it's just it's not an ideal situation. This isn't what this isn't a common thing in terms of coaches just randomly resigning in the middle of the off season, you know, towards the end of spring practice or whatever. So. It, you know, not what you're looking for, but um, obviously, again, when these things happen, it's good that we were able to hold those individuals accountable for misuse of funds and just general immoral behavior like that. I mean, that's um, that's that's just not that's not ideal. So well, well done to you, Mike. Bravo. Um, like I said, if you guys haven't seen the story, go check it out on CFB.Saturday or CFB-Saturday.com. Excuse me. Um, very well reported, Mike. Thank you. You bet. Uh, something that I have reported on in the past, and I guess it wasn't really reporting, it was columns, but again, we're, we're, we're segueing everyone here, and this is going to get much, much tougher here in a second. Um, something when I was uh, writing a lot more from the rumbleseat.com uh, on the SB Nation network, one of the things I, I was very passionate about over the last couple of years, really, that I wrote there was the uh, the branding of Georgia Tech Athletics and the very, very inconsistent and pathetic effort that was basically put towards it. Um, it, it was something that I see as a, a much bigger problem than a lot of people would want to give it credit for, especially a school full of engineers who are much more science data based rather than visual kind of artsy branding marketing minded, I would imagine. Um one of the good things that we we found out, obviously, several months ago that Georgia Tech would be moving away from Russell Athletic as of uh, July 1st of this year. They will be re uh, kind of realigning themselves with Adidas. Uh, in doing so, they released a new, basically a whole new branding profile for their visual brand that will be used on ESPN broadcasts and uh, the word marks on the field and on apparel and on uniforms and all these good things. Um, it's not anything really all that drastic. Um, in a lot of ways, it's very much a, a tribute or a throwback to a lot of 
very traditional Georgia Tech branding. Um, you'll notice the lettering on the Tech. Uh, the TEC is pretty much identical to the lettering on the iconic Tech Tower in Atlanta, which I thought is a really nice little little tribute. Um, the H is identical except for the the cross goes. You know, it's kind of got a little bit of a, a notch taken out of the crossbar, which is uh, part of the, the bigger font, if you go look at it, it's a little more kind of modern looking, we'll say. So nice little touch there. Uh, we're simplifying the colors down and some of the logos down. They, they've cut down from like 32 variants of the logo down to like eight. Lots of really positive things, Mike. I was really happy to see it with it. Um, that was released, you know, the morning of the spring game. Uh, as of the the bookstore opening that day there was a lot of adidas apparel also available for sale there was like four five six different shirts available in the bookstore um my mom bought mailed me one which was kind of nice i wore it to work yesterday it was pretty sweet um uh, so it's 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 all moving in a positive direction it was a very good thing and, and i expect a lot more this summer as this uh, this transition is officially made uh, we've kind of gotten glimpses at maybe some preliminary uniforms for Georgia Tech's football team. Um, I, I expect that there'll be uh, a little bit of detail added to them that were not previously there, but they've been, they've had models up in the locker room for months now with recruiting visits coming through and all that. So lots of positive stuff as it relates to Georgia Tech branding, uh, finally getting some problems fixed. And, and overall the, the athletic director, Todd Stansberry, I mean, I, I continue to be blown away by everything that he does and has been doing. It's, um, it's all very positive, making a lot of changes that have really been needed to be made and investments that need to be made and all this in not only football, but a lot of Georgia Tech's programs over the last several years. He's uh, he stepped in and made a lot of change really quickly. Um, I think he's officially been in office just I mean, it's barely been like a it's been less than two years and he's already done a hundred times as much as Mike Babinski did in over three years in office as AD. So um very pleased with what I've been seeing there. I think this is just a continuation of, of the really good work that Todd Stansbury has been doing. And I think it's going to start really showing in the product on the field over the next couple of years. In short, no more Russell athletic. Yes. Yes. This is my life's work, Mike. Yeah. This is the moment you've all been waiting for. I, Joey Weaver have killed Russell athletic. You have, me. I, I, yeah. If there was one person I had to give credit to, it's you. Um, yes. For the number of, pieces that you wrote about how bad Russell Athletic is and how bad the contract looked for Georgia Tech. Mm -hmm. But they're out of it in the clear. Away it's we a, go. It's a good day. And Mike, I'm gonna I'm gonna blame one last thing on Russell Athletic if you'll allow me to. Uh sure. R Russell the Athletic wait, wait the multiple blown fourth quarter leads last year? So, no 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 okay. well I blame Russell Athletic for like the sinkhole in my backyard and like the hole in the ozone layer and the whole thing. But okay. The, no, no, no. The, the blown fourth quarter leads last year were Ted Roof. Let's be very clear on that. He, he gets to own that all himself. Um, no, no, no. I'm blaming Russell Athletic because Georgia Tech did not have any players picked in the NFL draft, and they were one of only two ACC teams that could claim that. Ooh, segue. Yeah, not ideal. Also, yeah, I'm, I'm amazed that I pulled that segue off. I did not think that was going to be possible at all, but we got there. Uh, Mike, we had the NFL draft recently. Uh, I am disappointed that it took us 45 minutes of this podcast to get to that, but here we are. All good. Um, the ACC second overall in number of picks in the draft. That's good branding. Uh, second in the uh, the first round in picks with six to the SEC's 10. That's good branding. Very good stuff there. Um, however, Georgia Tech, Duke, both without any picks. 
Um, Mike, I want to talk about the first round picks, like who they went to, kind of how this went and whether that uh, was good value and a good location in some of these. And then kind of go down through the rest of the draft and talk through a couple of folks here or there and, and uh, where value picks were found. Um, first ACC player off the board, Mike, was number five to the Broncos, Bradley Chubb, defensive end out of NC State. Pass rush um, strong, man. Yeah, generally regarded as the best pass rusher in this draft. And honestly, I, I think that of the top two or three pass rushers in this draft, I mean, you're looking straight up at, at – uh, at the ACC between Bradley Chubb and uh, Harold Landry out of Boston College. So um, Bradley Chubb to the Broncos. Good uh, good spot for him, Mike? Uh, yeah. You're paired with Vaughn Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That'll be just fine. Yeah, I think that'll work out. Yeah. Um, that's One of the things they were talking about, the Browns taking a corner at number four right before him is they were trying to – fix up their uh, their their pass defense and it's like what well a really good way of fixing your pass defense is fixing your pass rush and yes. if the browns had taken chubb it would have been him and miles garrett up front which you don't have to have a very good secondary to defend the pass against those guys i uh, yeah if i were the browns i definitely would have taken um chubb there at four uh interesting that they didn't go that route but i mean yeah. hey one team's loss is another team's gain now denver has vaughn miller and bradley chubb Mm-hmm. as two of their more prominent pass rushers. So very, yeah. very cushy landing spot for Chubb. Yep. Yep. Good pick and good good program to be with for right now. I think they're probably closer than a number five overall pick would tend to indicate. Uh, number 16 to the Bills out of your Virginia Tech Hokies, uh, Tremaine Edmonds, the linebacker. Was that a little lower than you were expecting or probably about right? It was. I mean, I think he's the best linebacker in the draft and he – um, you know, I mean, Roquan Smith, obviously very good from Georgia, and he was actually picked ahead of uh, Tremaine Edmonds. But in my opinion, Tremaine Edmonds was the best linebacker in the draft. He can do a little bit of everything. Um, he can cover slot receivers. Uh, he's very quick in getting out to the flat. He's a very good pass rusher. Uh, he can stuff the run. I mean, he can do literally anything. And he's only 19. He turns 20 here in the first week of May. So one of the youngest players in the draft, one of the best players in the draft. I'm surprised he slipped to 16, but I think the Bills got a really good player in Tremaine Edmonds. Already very much a physical freak. Um, I, I think between him and Roquan Smith, it's maybe a personal preference kind of thing. I think Roquan's probably a little faster, uh, I mean, a little more impactful in the field from what you've seen so far, but... Literally can't go wrong. I mean, yeah, you can't go wrong. Yeah, if you needed a linebacker, you ended up with one of those two guys. I think you're you're in perfectly good shape, and I think Tremaine Edmonds will be really good for the Bills. Um, they they tend to have pretty good defenses on that on that team anyway, so I think he'll be a really good fit for them. That's a that's a good fit for him as well. Um, Seventeen to the Chargers, right after Tremaine Edmonds was Florida State's Derwin James. Uh, this was also probably a little low for him. He he yeah. fell maybe a few spots. And I don't know if that was anything wrong with Derwin as much as just some kind of strange picks from teams above that. Yeah, I think strange picks for sure throughout the first round. Um, I think Derwin James probably top five or six talent in the entire draft. Mm-hmm. One of the best athletes in the draft period. And the fact that he fell to 17, I think that's a steal for the Chargers. They need to, plus, they need somebody in the secondary like him to kind of... Um, you know, an injection of youth would be good there. Well, he was the first safety off the board, but again, I, I'm with you that he was he was better than a top 17 talent in this draft. I, I think calling him a top 10 talent is a pretty easy thing to do. 
Um, but a couple of teams reaching above him, I think, for sure. Once we got past 12, I was surprised. Like, that's when I started saying, wow, Derwin James is still on the board. Then we got to 15. I was like, wow, Derwin James is still on the board. Mm-hmm. Finally, at 17, he find, you know, he gets picked. So you had 16 Edmonds to the Bills, 17 James to the Chargers, and then an 18 to the Packers. I, I thought this was maybe a little high for what I was expecting, but Jair Alexander to the Packers, um, I, I, he very talented guy. I think he can be very good in the NFL. Uh, obviously, Louisville's defense was completely different with him on the field versus off of it. Uh, but, Mike, is it is it unfair to say that this is maybe like a couple picks too early for Jair Alexander? Probably a little too early. I think this kind of starts to run, um, especially with defensive players where I thought some guys were picked a little too early. Um, Jair Alexander at 18. I think it's a good fit going to the Packers. I, I think it definitely fills a need. This is I think this was more need over best player available um, when the Packers chose Alexander here at 18. I think he's going to be good. I think he's likely a first round talent still. It's nothing, nothing against him, but I think it was mostly a need pick for the Packers. I think Jair Alexander was more back, back in the first round, maybe early second round type talent. I think that's probably fair. Um, and again, I think he'll be good. I think that'll be a good fit for him. And and the Packers are a team too that have always done really, really well at identifying and, and evaluating talent. So uh, I think that that's probably indicative of what they saw in Jair Alexander. Uh, at 28 to the Steelers, Mike, again from your Hokies, the younger brother, older brother of Tremaine is Terrell Edmonds. Older uh, brother, barely. Older? Barely. Do we know by, about how much? By about a year. Oh, okay. It's not like a 12 minutes kind of situation. Then. No, no. Okay. Fair. Well, in any case, Trail Edmonds to the Steelers at 28. Uh, I thought that was maybe a little higher than I was expecting. He wasn't a guy as we were looking at uh, pre-draft projections that I was seeing him as like a first round type of guy. But I mean, the Edmonds brothers kind of wreaked a ton of havoc on Virginia Tech's defense. And I think there's probably a reason for that. And so I, I can't blame anybody. I mean, I think that's probably a pretty strong pick as well. Strong pick for the Steelers. Um, what's interesting about Terrell Edmonds is that when he decided that he was declaring for the NFL draft, it was a bit of a surprise. And then you saw mock drafts that had him in the in the second or third round. But then leading up to the draft, there were a lot of reports saying, hey, scouts are really impressed with him. Don't be surprised if he goes a little bit earlier than anticipated. Steelers are obviously really enamored with pairing Terrell Edmonds with Sean Davis, their other safety who will be entering his third year in the league out of the University of Maryland. The reason why I bring him up is because he and I were in the same English class in high school. So mm. I felt the need to bring, to bring that up, a little bit of a personal connection with me and Sean Davis. Um, but Terrell, Ed, Terrell Edmonds, pair him with Sean Davis in the Pittsburgh secondary. Two really strong young safeties. I think that'll be a really good fit. Plus, with Terrell Edmonds, you get the defensive versatility. I've watched him a ton at Tech, obviously. Um, his ability to line up as a linebacker in, in nickel formations. He's a very good tackler very stout against the run. He's versatile, um, has enough size to, to stop the run up front. Um, his secondary and his coverage ability, um, a little bit shaky. That's probably where he needs to work on things the most, but he's such a, such a good athlete. I think a lot, of, um, a lot of the scouts are expecting him to figure it out. I think that's why he ended up going as high as he did. And then sneaking into the first round of the very, very end, the Baltimore Ravens trade up uh, to 32. They get the pick from the Eagles. And they select the 2016 Heisman Trophy winner, Louisville quarterback, none other than the phenomenal Lamar Jackson. Um, fun fact, 
second Louisville quarterback in the last, uh, call it four or five years, that has been taken with the number 32 overall pick. And that's where Teddy Bridgewater was taken as well, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so people have a weird habit of doing that. I think, I, look, Mike, when I was looking at this and, and thinking of what do I want for Lamar Jackson, I had I had two criteria that I wanted for him. A, I wanted him to be able to go sit for a year somewhere, you know, not have to be relied on right out the gate. Uh, he probably needs to marinate just a little bit, kind of acclimate to the NFL game and learn the offense before he's asked, you know, thrust out there and asked to go execute it. And B, I wanted to make sure that he didn't go to the Patriots or the Saints because I, I could not be forced to wish bad on Lamar Jackson and still, you know, feel good about where he went. So uh, he stayed away from the Patriots and the Saints. He ended up at a team where he'll sit behind Joe Flacco for however long Flacco stays healthy for, at least 30 years, we'll say. 35 minutes or so. Yeah, maybe the, the better part of the first game, whatever it takes. Um, I thought this was a an absolute perfect landing spot for Lamar Jackson. I was super happy for him, and, and I think that this is – about as good of a shot at being successful in the NFL as he's going to get. Yeah. Uh, I thought he was going to go to the Saints in the middle of the first round, and I thought he was going to go to the Patriots in one of their two picks. Uh, go to the Ravens. That was probably the next best destination for him. Plus, it's a situation where I think he can be on the field sooner rather than later, but he still has the luxury of sitting behind a veteran quarterback. So I think it's a really good situation uh, for him, and he'll have an opportunity to kind of refine his footwork, which I think is the one thing that's holding him back from being a more consistent passer. Um, but he has the athletic ability and the arm strength and, and accuracy when he sets his feet to figure it out. Elite athlete. I mean, he's just, he's outstanding. Totally. And I, I heard a comment or two that I, I thought was kind of interesting that, sure, we're going to primarily sit Lamar Jackson coming out the gate, but he does have some skills that you can maybe put together a couple of package things for him to do pretty early on in his rookie season. I mean, if you talk about a goal line thing or maybe a, a third and short kind of package, whatever, where you want to use his running ability and his vision. I mean, that's a, that's a possibility with, uh, with what you want to see from him and what he's, he brings to the table athletically. Mike, let's talk about a few other picks and I'm going to, I'm going to call out a few names that, uh, and, and kind of where they went. And I want to get your thoughts on too high, too low and whether they're a fit. Uh, Harold Landry falling to the Titans at number 41. I was actually a little bit surprised that he fell um, into the second round and not only into the second round, but like eight picks into the second round. Um, that surprised me. I thought Harold Landry, I, I thought he'd be selected in the first round. I wasn't shell shocked when he wasn't, um, but we got past pick 40 and I'm sitting here thinking, man, Harold Landry is still on the board. This is very surprising to me. Um, Obviously, a really good career at Boston College. He's an outstanding edge rusher. Um, not sure, you know, totally what the qualms are. He has had a little bit of an injury history. Maybe that plays in a little bit. Um, a good fit for Tennessee, though, man. They're revamping that defense. Obviously, they signed Malcolm Butler in the offseason Patri- away from the Patriots. Um, they signed Logan Ryan away from the Patriots two, two years ago. So they improved their secondary each of the last two seasons. Um, now they're improving their pass rush. I think Harold Landry's an excellent pick there. 16 and a half sacks in 2016 and uh, 26 overall in college over the last three years for Harold Landry. So yeah, a good pass rusher there. Uh, Brian O'Neill, offensive tackle from Pittsburgh, back into the second round, 62 to the Vikings. Thought it was a little high. Uh, I, I think he's a good player. I do. Um, thought it was a little high. A lot of the mock drafts had him you know, somewhere in the middle of the third round, at least the ones I saw. Um, so it was a little high for him. 
Uh, but the Vikings need somebody to protect Kirk Cousins, right? You spend, you know, 90 odd million dollars um, in a quarterback. You want to make sure he stays healthy and can stay on the field. So uh, I understand investing, um, investing draft capital and, and free agent money in offensive linemen when you pay that much to get a quarterback. I wonder about how much the the draw to him is some of the trick play athleticism kind of things that he brings to the table. But at the end of the day, I mean, probably not a not a huge deal there. Uh, he's if if somebody's drafting him in the second round of the NFL draft, he's he's probably pretty serviceable, and somebody's seeing that um, at that level. Uh, fourth round, one twelve to the Bengals. Mark Walton. Yeah, I mean the bang, the Bengals have had running backs very similar to Mark Walton on their roster in the past. Uh, Jeremy Hill, Giovanni Bernard, uh, you go down the list. Um, They've had players with similar skill sets to Mark Walton. As long as their offense remains the same, you know, that's going to be a very cushy landing spot for Walton where I think he'll be able to come in and produce right away. Uh, The same thing goes for a guy selected eight picks before that, Naheem Hines um, with the Colts. Now, obviously the Colts, you know, they have a new coaching staff as well, uh, but looking at the situation that Hines is in, you know, you had Frank Gore and Frank Gore is a vet and, you know, he he did great things for the Colts. But when you bring in a young guy like Naheem Hines, he's got the ability to step in right away and be a contributor from day one. He's obviously got the talent to run between the tackles and run to the outside. So I think with Hines and Walton bringing similar skill sets to the table, I think they're two really good fits for both the Colts and the Bengals. Five picks later, 117 to the Buccaneers, Jordan Whitehead. Yeah, Jordan Whitehead's one of those guys, too, um, that can kind of give you some action on the offensive side of the ball as well. We saw that at Pittsburgh. He was used in many different packages. Obviously, a really good, a really strong tackling safety. Had his fair share of issues in coverage, which is why he uh, likely slid down to the fourth round, but you know, you're not going to find many players as athletic as Jordan Whitehead in the back end of your secondary. So I think it's probably a pretty good pick by Tampa Bay, but it all really comes down to how well can Whitehead uh, defend against the pass and can he really develop those coverage skills because he had his fair share of issues at Pittsburgh um, playing for a defense that really just wasn't all that good during his time there. Fifth round, barely inside the top 150, Micah Kaiser, linebacker to the Rams freaking steal i mean kaiser in my opinion is one of the best linebackers in the entire draft now i'm no i'm no scouting analyst i understand that a bunch of linebackers went ahead of him but micah kaiser was a leading tackler on virginia what was it or one of the two top leading tacklers what each of the last three seasons Mm -hmm. Um, really really strong player um for a virginia defense that improved as well um you know a virginia roster that wasn't very good um, but they were competing for a bowl game spot, so on and so forth. And they finally got to a bowl game this past season. Um, but Mikey Kaiser was the pillar to that defense, and he was really, really good for them during his time at Virginia. And I'm surprised he slid to the fifth round. I think he's a guy that can step in right away and really help the Rams uh, just because of his ability in the open field to make tackles. Um, and he doesn't really do anything that hurts your team you don't look at a guy like micah kaiser in the middle of your defense and and look at him and say oh man he missed a tackle that really cost us he just never really did that at virginia for a defense that was so up and down but by the end of his tenure there um as a player was really on the upswing i think i look at all of these acc 
picks, Mike, and there were several of them. I think there were over 60 in the draft. Uh, I don't know that aside from the fit for Lamar Jackson, I don't know that I can find a better fit or one that I'm more intrigued by than Jalen Samuels to the Pittsburgh Steelers at 165 late in the fifth round. Thinking about the what the things that they do with Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell, man, they could do some fun things right there with uh, Jalen Samuels. It's really funny, too, because Pittsburgh goes out, right? They trade Martavis Bryant on draft night. It was either the first night of the draft. I think it was the first it was. night of the draft. Mm-hmm. They trade Martavis Bryant. Um, they start drafting some contributors on the offensive side of the ball, and then they wait till the fifth round, and they get Jalen Samuels, a guy who can produce at receiver, at running back. He can play tight end. They have a lot of really, really good athletic players. Jalen Samuels fits that role. I think he makes them really, really intriguing. Like you mentioned, because they have Antonio Brown, they have Juju, they have Le'Veon Bell. Um, obviously, Ben Roethlisberger showed last year he still has something left in the tank. I mean, that offense is good anyway. And then you steal Jalen Samuels in the fifth round, a guy who can really, um, really add a ton of positional versatility to your offense because you can line him up almost anywhere on the field. And I think he can be an instant contributor. I'm so intrigued by that big time. Um, Beyond that, Duke Ejiofor, defensive end at Wake Forest, the Texans in the sixth round. That was cool, I thought, right? I mean, you're dealing with Javion Clowney. He he has plenty of health issues. I think drafting insurance guy and, and JJ Watt as well, obviously. Um, same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you have two really strong defensive ends that Edge of Four at the very least can learn from. But he had a really good career at Wake Forest. I think he can step in and he can at least become a rotational piece on that defense. Um, for two guys that, you know, let's be honest, can't really stay healthy for as good as they are. So I think Edge of Four is a, is a good fit. I think he'll be able to learn from two really good players in front of him, and I think he will get some playing time there. Um, a really solid six-round pick, I thought. I bring him up mostly to bring up, A, the, the Wake Forest connection, and B, I think that him in the sixth round is really good, pretty solid value. I mean, I think he can be a pretty pretty solid player, especially for a sixth-round guy like that. Um, a couple more, Mike. 185 to the Colts, Deion Kane, 187 to the Bills, Ray Ray McLeod, the two Clemson wide receivers. Uh, who do you think got the better player there? Yeah, see, I think both of those teams need need receivers. Um, I think Buffalo probably got the better fit because I think they were really looking for a slot guy. Uh, Buffalo's really been missing that. They ran Chris Hogan out of the slot a good bit, and since he left for the Patriots, they really haven't had that. Um, had that guy could step in the slot and be a – instant contributor i mean they've had zay jones and he's been fine but um i think adding ray ray mcleod and, and just adding another guy to that offense um who could step out this slot and, and play well right away um you know he he's got great hands he has the ability to make people miss i think it's a really good pick um i, I would say that that's a better pick over Dion kane who's had issues with drops and things of that sort in the past and that's a reason why he slipped to the sixth round he had some off the field issues early in his career clemson as well um, the Colts need a big body receiver. I think Kane provides that. Can can Kane reel in all the passes thrown his way? Um, when he doesn't have issues with drops, he's a really really outstanding receiver. But when he does, it's like, well, why are you, why are you out there? You know. Um, so I favor the McLeod pick over Dion Kane, but I think in the sixth round you're rolling the dice anyway. So I think either pick is fine. I tend to lean the other way and almost I, I see Kane as the guy with the better hands than McLeod, but 
Uh, and so that's why I would lean Deion Kane for the Colts, especially working with uh, Andrew Luck the way that he will be there. I, I think that that was a pretty solid pick and a good fit for him. McLeod, I think, has all the physical tools. I just wonder if, if his hands are going to hold up in the league, so time will tell. Uh, last one I've got, Mike. Back into the sixth round, a year New England Patriots, Mr. Braxton Berrios out of Miami. I think this might be a subtly really like perfect fit, and I'm going to hate it for years to come. Yeah, perfect pick. Um, lose Danny Amendola to the Dolphins, Julian Edelman getting up there in age. So what do you do? You draft another five foot nine receiver in Braxton Berrios, who really doesn't drop anything and makes people miss in the open field. Um, and can return the ball and can do all sorts of he fills, he, Yeah, he fills in a ton of needs because the Patriots have been really missing a, a solid solid return man. Obviously, they didn't have Julian Edelman last year, but they don't really want to put him back there on punt return anyway because he's had injury issues. They had Dan, Danny Amendola back there, but once Edelman went down, they didn't really want to use him all that much um, in punt return situations because they don't want him getting hurt. And then you had kind of the snowball effect. They had Cyrus Jones back there, the former Alabama corner, who's had his fair share of issues, first of all, fielding punts and then holding up in coverage defensively. Um, so I think Barrios really provides versatility, like you mentioned, in the return game, punt and kick return, as well as in the slot where they have a guy in Julian Edelman who's only like 31 or 32, but he has fair share of injury issues, and he's getting a little bit up there in age. Plus, they have to replace Danny Amendola anyway, so I think Barrios is pretty much a perfect fit. That's all I got, Mike. Uh, anybody that you wanted to bring up that I missed on? Um, Greg Stroman to the Redskins in the seventh round just because he's a Hokie. Um, I'm intrigued by the Ryan Izzo pick by the Patriots um, in the seventh round. Ryan Izzo obviously has um, ability to go out and, and, and catch you know catch passes, but I think what he really provides for the Patriots is um, the ability to be an inline blocker. Um, I think the Patriots were a little bit disappointed with the production of Dwayne Allen at tight end last year um, when they brought him in more as a, a run bro- run blocker from the Colts than anything else. I think they were a little bit disappointed with his production. I think Ryan Izzo can push him in camp, even though he's a seventh-round pick. And then one other guy I want to bring up, uh, Joey, who I was really surprised wasn't drafted, was Quinn Blanding from UVA. Mm-hmm. Really, really surprised that he wasn't even picked in the sixth or the seventh round. Had a really productive career at Virginia. Obviously, it was a five-star recruit, one of the top recruits in the state of Virginia um, back in, let's do the math, 2014. Um, really surprised that he ends up going undrafted um, for the talent that he brings to the table. Um, that was one of the biggest surprises for me, I think, overall, as far as the ACC was concerned. The Quinn Blanding, for as much hype as he got, and as well as he played, he was an all-ACC selection multiple years, that he went completely undrafted. Um, I, I, that was a pretty big surprise for me. I, I'm guessing it's some of his testing or something, because to me, I mean, his production, like you're saying, I mean, he was generally like a star on that defense. I mean, he was one of the, the best tacklers in the ACC for the last four years, and the, the fact that, that, I mean, that production, we're sitting here acting like that's not going to translate to the NFL. I mean, to me, that's that's questionable. And, and I think sometimes the NFL guys kind of overthink it. And I, I think, honestly, one of the things that subtly New England has done really, really well in building their team through the years is almost ignoring a lot of the measurables and just going straight for, hey, how can we get, uh, bring in good football players, right? Um, Quinn Blanding, the measurables might not be there, but he's a good football player. So... Um, I, I'm with you. That, that surprised me quite a bit, and I, um, I, I'm I'm shocked that that 
it took you know a full draft and then somebody signing him as a free agent for for him to be off the board. So um, very odd. Uh, Mike, if you don't have anything else, I've got one more thing we got to get to. Um, we have a couple of questions. We got reader questions, Mike. Nice from all of our readers of the podcast. Nice. Um, listen, I read, I read podcasts too. I read yeah. podcasts too. Yeah. Uh, we we all read podcasts from time to time. It's nothing to be ashamed of. You know, perfectly natural. Um, if it lasts for more than four hours, you know, go see your doctor. The whole thing. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, we got a couple of questions from Mr. Andrew Parker uh, on Twitter, uh, and I'll kind of close the loop here a little bit in that he uh, he gave me these questions as he was responding to a, a mini rant that I had on uh, spring game attendance, which is where we started this podcast. So to bring it all full circle. Two questions that I feel like are very important things that we need to address, Mike, that I don't know that we ever have on this podcast. Number one, what type of barbecue do you enjoy? Oh, man. So I was just in Texas a couple of weeks ago. I was in Austin mm-hmm. on, on business for work. Best barbecue I've ever had in my entire life. Um, so whatever the Austin barbecue is, it was good. Mike, there's like a million Austin barbecue places. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, As someone who lives three hours away, I can promise you there's like a million of them. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, I know it was pit cook barbecue and it was really good. Um, okay. It was outstanding. Okay. Fair. I know that uh, Franklin's barbecue there is supposed to be like world famous, like legendary, excellent. Um, Austin barbecue in particular is very interesting. It's got like a, a really unique culture around it where, um, there's all these just little barbecue shacks and they, they only make a certain amount of everything for the day. And you got to pretty much, you go get in line and you wait for an hour, two hours, four hours, whatever. And people bring like lawn chairs and a cooler, a beer and just, you know, lawn games. And, and they're all, all closed. By, and they're all closed by like four o'clock too, which is because they've all awesome. run out of stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's a very interesting culture around them, but, um, lots of really, really good stuff there. Um, uh, strangely, I've only eaten it, like a couple of them there. Um, I, I'd have to go find where one of them was. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but in any case, if you're looking for really good barbecue, Austin is a good starting place. Um, type of barbecue I enjoy. I'll take this in a different direction. Um, I'm a really big brisket guy. Uh, I'm a pretty big pulled pork guy. Um, generally, if you're talking about barbecue sauces, um, my, my fraternity house chef in college, Carlos, uh, he had a, a magnificent white barbecue sauce. It's like an Alabama white barbecue sauce. Um, I am a sucker for that. Um, other than that, I mean, anything that's a little bit, you know, kind of sweet, kind of spicy. Um, the Stubbs Sweet Heat, if you're familiar, is uh, what I tend to use on pork and ribs and all that good stuff. Nice. Um, nice. I, I eat plenty of my share of barbecue. So Shout out to Carlos. Yeah, hey. Shout out, Carlos. Yeah, uh, not, not the table, Carlos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah. Uh, and then, Mike, maybe more importantly, uh, what are your feelings on socks? Uh, I'm not wearing socks right now. Ooh, good move. Same. Nice. How do um, I feel about them in general, though, after that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I wear them every day, but I don't really wear them around the house unless I have to. Now, so you like you wear socks to work and stuff, right? Yeah, right? well, yeah, yeah. I'm not that big of a savage, you know. Yeah, sure. Right. As, you know, I as much as I wish I could go to work not wearing socks every day, you know, yeah. it's kind of polite and yep. thing to do. But um, 
Mike, when you when you wear socks to work, what, are they just like plain black, white, brown socks, or do they have like some uh, some plaid action going on, or some sort of uh, argyle, or you know, cute designs? What some, like what are we looking at? Here? We we try to do some sort of design on the socks, right? But mm-hmm. if we don't, it's just plain black, plain white. Okay, but with the dress socks, you got to mix it up a little bit because you're wearing them every day, right? I mean, it's yeah, this is this is a clear, you know, if you were if you were ranking my draft profile right now, Mike, okay, like that would be a clear weakness on my draft profile is my sock game. Okay. It's not there. Yeah, take that take that down. Uh, I and it's not like a it's not like an intentional thing. I just have never really gotten in the habit of buying nice socks and then all of a sudden around Christmas time this year I was asking like I'd like some fancy socks. And now I have a, a couple pairs of socks that have my dog Calvin on them. Um, nice. It's pretty dope. And nice. um, for this wedding I'm going to be in this summer, I, I've got a, a pair of Captain America socks that are nice. pretty awesome. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm trying to work on up in the sock game, but if you guys have recommended like sock vendors for getting uh, decent looking pairs of socks and not just like plain black polo socks, that would be uh, much, much appreciated. I have a pair of uh, Larry Bird socks. Ooh, that's cool. Yeah. Like yeah. That. yeah. Um, get your Celtics on at work, I guess. Right. Um, Got to in the playoffs, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, but if I'm ever going out wearing like loafers, you know, the, the Sperry's or just general, I've got some like loafer, you know, slip on shoes, whatever. I'll, I'll, if I'm wearing shorts, I'll go no socks on those, obviously. Yeah. Um, socks to me are more of a thing if I got long pants on or Correct. wearing like athletic you know, tennis shoes, something like that. Right. That's, that's about it. But I, I completely agree. Now, if you go to the beach and at any point during the trip, you're wearing socks, you're probably doing it wrong. Right. Unless you're unless like you're going playing for golf. A, what's that? Unless you're playing golf. Yes. Yeah. Unless you're playing golf or yeah. going on like a bike ride or something like that, then you wear socks. But other than that, um, Andrew describes socks as the oppressors of man. And I, to some degree, I, I, I think there are certain situations where I would agree with that. I don't think all of them. I think there's, there's times where, I appreciate that folks are wearing socks and, and we need to keep it that way. It's a, it's a bold statement from Andrew, our number one podcast listener. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you said, I can't completely disagree. Yeah, for sure. It's situational though. It is. It totally is. Um, it, it, yeah. You got to read the room. Always read the room. It's very important with socks and everything else. Literally no socks, everything else. No socks and flip flops unless you're pooping or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Pooping, not pooping to be clear there let's i didn't hear a difference there but sure good okay um if yeah if you take nothing away from this podcast other than this one thing make sure that you always read the room that's my my biggest life lesson read the room that's it yeah okay mike that's all i got you got anything else i think we're good this was a good catch-up podcast because we essentially hadn't had a pod for about a month so yeah yeah and it's been a busy month i mean you've been traveling and working lord knows what hours for work and i've been uh, working a whole bunch and dealing with a whole bunch of nonsense. And uh, I can kind of maybe speak to some of that in our next episode. There's a couple of interesting goings on to catch up on, but this has been um, a solid uh, like hour plus of podcast content. And I think a good catch up here. So we'll, uh, uh, we'll have to come back and do it again soon, probably sooner than uh, this really was. We'll probably give it like a couple or three weeks and we'll, uh, we'll be back is what we said last time. And, We'll see if it goes up this time or not. We tried. You know, to be fair, we did try. Schedules just didn't work out. This is true. Yes. I, th- our word to you is that we did try to, to make this happen, and we just 
again, we were just kind of busy. Shit happens. So and one more, one more thing here. This wasn't like last off season where we were going through the podcast game. We were like, oh man, all right, well, we'll figure out some podcast content. To be fair, we were completely new to this too, still. Mm-hmm. But we were thinking like, all right, some off season podcast content. All right, we'll figure it out. Three months later, we were like, okay, it's time to start previewing teams. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be fair, we've got some podcasts out. Mm-hmm. And we've made, I think, more of a conscious effort to make sure we're up in the podcast game here in the offseason. So, if anything, yeah. the effort's there. Absolutely. And, Mike, for what it's worth, we're not that far from having to start previewing some teams again. I know. We're getting there. Uh, as we sit here recording, it's now May 1st into May 2nd. Mm-hmm. Time. So, That's good. right. Getting there. You start looking at that like post-July 4th time frame is when we start previewing teams. So, yep. uh, we'll... we'll We'll get there when we get there. Mike, this has been fun. Let's come back and do it again sometime soon. Uh, in the meantime, the people can go find us on Twitter. I'm at FTRS Joey. He is at Mike McDaniel CFB. Together we're at BC Podcast ACC. Y'all can send us an email to the longest email address known to man, basketballconferencepodcast at gmail.com. It's like riding a bike. You nailed it. Absolutely. And it's been a minute since we've gotten an email, so hit us up if you got one. Uh, y'all can find us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash basketball conference. I totally jacked that for me, Mike. I, as soon as we were just talking about like riding a bike, now I'm messing it up. Hey, it's like riding a bike. (laughs) It is. Uh, you can go find us on YouTube. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google play, uh, the overcast app, wherever fine podcasts are sold. Uh, Mike, is there anywhere else that they can find us that I'm forgetting? I'm sure there is probably. Yeah. Did I mention YouTube? You can find us on YouTube. Yeah. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying you can if, if yeah. you so choose. We're on there somewhere. Absolutely. Promise. Uh, anyways, Mike, this has been fun. We'll come back to it again soon. Absolutely. Bye. All right. For Mr. Mike McDaniel, I am Joey Weaver. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you guys so much for listening. And until next time, go ACC. Yeah,